Welcome to the Breathing God podcast. I'm your host, Gretchen Rodriguez. This is Thanksgiving week, and I decided that I would take a break from recording a podcast this week. So I decided to share my number two most listened to episode with a very special guest. Her name is Laura Duncan. And honestly, I could have talked to her for hours about connecting to our hearts, showing ourselves compassion, and the healing emotional pain. I was so, so blessed talking to her. She has so much wisdom, such compassion to share with you. Um, Her goal is to help each individual engage the world from their true self, you know, and clear-minded, tender-hearted, and at peace. I know that you are going to be incredibly blessed if you haven't heard this, and if you have heard it, let this be a refresher. Love you, my friends. Hi, friends. I want to read Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40 from the Passion Translation. It says, Jesus answered him, love the Lord your God with every passion of your heart, with all the energy of your being and with every thought that is within you. This is the great and supreme commandment. And the second is like it in importance. You must love your friend in the same way you love yourself. Contained within these commandments to love, you will find all the meaning of the law and the prophets. And I want to highlight, Jesus said that loving others and loving ourselves are similar in importance as loving him. So today I'm going to have a chat with Laura Duncan, who teaches the value of loving ourselves and how to heal triggers and traumas. Um, and how that can actually help us live in greater peace, but also help us connect to the Lord with so much more freedom. So, Laura, welcome. Hello, thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to have you. I'm so excited. I've been waiting for this. I've been looking forward to this. And I have so many things on my heart to ask you. But first, you teach, you counsel, you've counseled thousands of people, you have counseled corporations too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. And and you have a course called the Compassion Method. Mm-hmm. And so why don't we just start right there? Why don't you tell us a little bit about what is the Compassion Method? So the Compassion Method was birthed out of actually the last 12 years of life. I've been doing life consulting for the last nine years, um, but I actually started with my husband passing away 12 years ago. Um, when he died, um, I didn't know, know how to go through grief. I wasn't super aware of emotions and how that impacted us. And one of my biggest motivators was my kids. At the time, they were three, five, six, and seven. Wow. And statistically, um, losing a parent at the formative of an age really was had the potential to set them up to... Um, go through a lot of hardship and potentially not do well in life. And I already felt like it was hard enough and sad enough that they had lost a parent and they missed out on him investing and being part of their lives because 
um, he was a really good dad. But then I also thought, so not only are they going to go through that suffering, but then their lives are going to be suffering, mm-hmm. you know? So it's one thing to go through the initial event of a parent passing at a young age, but then to live your whole life with the ramifications of it. I just didn't want that for them. Yeah. And so my pursuit actually started out for them first, which probably if anyone's listening, that's a mom, you probably know that like, sometimes it's not as I don't know if I had kids, if I would have been as inspired for myself, just being honest, because at that time I didn't recognize the value of loving myself. Mm -hmm. And I ultimately was going to love my kids more than myself in order to be able to find a way for them to be able to heal from their grief. So it started out with that, um, learning how to recognize pain, which sounds almost obvious. If you have someone pass away, you think, oh, of course you're going to feel pain. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the grief process is very blurry, confusing, difficult to understand, especially if you don't, didn't have that in your early childhood development as well. So from that, I learned how to process pain, how to teach my children to process their pain, and then ended up opening it up to the world to process their pain. Wow. And it might seem like a small thing to process pain, but whether you've had a death in your life or if you've just experienced, there's so many different forms of loss. And as humans, we like to rate them, you know, Mm. some losses are so much worse and so much is some losses are so much less, but at the end of the day, pain is pain, loss is loss, and each person is going to process it differently. So we can't always judge a loss as being bigger or smaller because of what that individual is actually going through. And so learning how to process pain, I was able to open that up to a very intricate process of healing that I started to work with family and friends and then it branched off into other people and word of mouth never advertised. And I've had a three to six month wait for the last six years. That's amazing. So that was, that was definitely a, a story of, of God taking ashes and making them beautiful. Yeah, definitely. Yes, definitely. And I don't mean to share the, I've had a wait list for X amount of years, just because I'm giving myself a pat on the back. I'm saying that that's how many people haven't been equipped to handle pain that I've been able to help them walk through, which I consider a privilege and an honor because uh, I know how difficult beautiful. it is to walk through pain. Yeah. So tell us, tell us a little bit more. Let's dive into a little bit more about what the compassion method is itself. Um, I know you use words like triggers, um, which I think probably most people know what a trigger is, but maybe not, maybe not. Mm -hmm. And so if you can share a little bit about what the compassion method is, how it helps us, what, what, what have you found, um, really is changing people's lives that's making such a long wait list what is Mm -hmm. what is different about what you're doing yeah so you mentioned triggers that's kind of our start point you know that's how why and how a lot of people end up in my office meeting because they're having an event or an internal process that's happening that's causing them to trigger and a trigger is a fight flight freeze or fawn response to a person or event in our life. It engages our amygdala, which is our protective system in our brain to protect us from pain. So ultimately in a very you know, nutshell, if a wild animal is chasing you, your fight or, fl- 
fight or flight response will be engaged in order to protect you so that you can survive. So what happens when we experience emotional pain, we feel like a wild animal is chasing us. But unfortunately, what our brain interprets is that our spouse, our family member, our friends, our community, our church, even sometimes God is the wild animal chasing us because of the pain that we're experiencing. So it says danger, 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 and engages in that amygdala, which shuts down our frontal lobe. It doesn't allow us to be able to um, think from a sophisticated adult brain. So, so it causes us to go back as a child. It causes us to think from a child brain. Mm-hmm. Is that the- yep, exactly. So that amygdala has uh, multiple names. The scientific name is amygdala, but the other names that psychology will give to it is a primal brain and a child brain. Okay. And I center on the child brain because we are literally going back zero to 12 years old when our brain was first experiencing our developmental stage and it's connecting with that child brain that got stunted because of either pain or unmet need that we didn't learn how to process pain or emotions because our parents most likely myself included got scared of big emotions and shut them down versus teaching us as children how to process those emotions. So as adults, when we experience those same emotions in a different context or a different form, our brain goes right back to being a five-year-old, feeling big emotions and not knowing what to do with it. Mm -hmm. And then a religion compounds it because we're not allowed to feel big emotions because that we feel like it's sin or we feel like it's wrong. And just to throw in um, a fact, Jesus felt big emotions. And it wasn't sin because it said he never sinned, but he mm-hmm. felt big emotions. So if you feel like when you feel big emotions, you're in sin or you're wrong or you're bad, Jesus was our model for big emotions. Mm-hmm. When Lazarus was actually dead, even though he, he went there to raise him from the dead, he grieved with Mary and Martha and the people there before he raised him from the dead. Yeah. And when That's, I look at that, that is I, so amazing yeah. to me. It's I mean, so he even, amazing. It's so amazing because he knew, he knew what he was about to do, yet he still allowed that connection of feeling what they were feeling and grieving with them. That's so personal and so special. I love that. I agree. So, so when, so we're allowed to have a big emotion. Um, Oh, it makes me think of a question, but I want to hold that question for later. Um, <laughs> but when we're so, okay. So I also like that you say, you know, flight of, what is it? Uh, freeze. Oh, fight, flight, yeah, fight, freeze, flight, freeze, or, freeze fawn. or fawn. And I love that you include that one. Is that one that you brought in yourself? Um, no, but it is a newer one to the um, community. I think it was 19. 19- in the 80s that um, someone kind of came up with that as a triggered response. And um, I really relate to it on a personal level because that was my trigger when I was younger and sometimes still is. Mm -hmm. But if you're a people pleaser, again, like I said, in the religious community and Christianity, you find it comes up quite often because fawning is, I feel a big emotion come up inside of me because my world the person in my life isn't okay, usually has to do with a parent that was angry or shut down, that the child felt like it was their responsibility to draw out. 
So what would happen is they'd feel a big frantic emotion and then try to help please fix their caregiver so that maybe that caregiver could be with them in their big emotion. Mm. Yeah. And so we can see how that starts that people pleasing. And then people say, just don't people please. But at the end of the day, (laughs) you're trying so hard to be able to take care of that trigger that came up inside of you. It's not just, you're trying to make the other person happy. You're trying to be okay within yourself. Right. That's so good. Yeah. I I actually had never heard the fun one until I started listening to you and I thought, that's me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so yeah, I love it. Yeah. There's a lot of, and a lot of times you get like, kind of like that pat on the back of like, Oh, you're so good. Cause you're making everyone around you happy. I, I had that. My nickname Mm -hmm. when I was little was Beamer and I would just smile and people would smile back. And I thought, Oh, this is great. (laughs) You can make the whole world happy, but at what expense? Cause if I have pain inside my heart, if I have a deep sadness in my heart, but I can't face it and I can't get comfort for it. I just have to make others around me happy mm-hmm. and almost get like a indirect comfort because other people are happy, but I'm not getting a direct comfort for my sadness. It's relieving the pressure, but the sadness is still there. Oh, that's so good. So, okay. So let's say that someone is like, okay, yeah, I, I get triggered. So does that mean that every time I'm triggered that there's something from my childhood that has caused that. And then if that's true, now, what do I do with that information? What is, how do I implement this compassion method? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And so then what we're doing is we're starting the process um, of not blaming whatever caused the trigger. It's very easy to do. Someone says something rude to us, it causes a big emotion. Of course it's their fault, but really It would be like, if I had a wound on my shoulder and you came and you pressed on it, I would be like, ouch, it would hurt me so much because I have this wound that your words, your actions are pressing on. But if I actually took care of the wound and healed the wound and you came and pressed on that same place on my shoulder, it wouldn't hurt the same way. So what we're doing is we're being able to recognize it's not about what we're going through, even though it looks like it smells like it, everything in us wants to say it's mm-hmm. that person. Right. And then we really love to bring the jury in. I always call it a jury where we like to bring the jury in to say like, okay, look what this person did. So we put like the 10 records of wrong we're keeping track mm-hmm. of and we present to the person. And then the jury all says, you're right. But the reason why it's so detrimental, even if it's justified to blame another person for how they make us feel the reason why it's so detrimental for ourselves is because it neglects our heart. I can blame for the rest of my life, the pain that I believe that person created and is starting, or I can actually take care of my heart to be able to tend to it and care for it with compassion. Hence the compassion method, bringing compassion, connecting the feelings and bringing comfort to those places. And then from that place, my heart is full and then I can look back at that person or circumstance and they're going to feel and look different because mm-hmm. I'm not responding from a wound because that's what a trigger is, is a reaction to our wound. I'm now responding from my true self because my heart is full. And so how do they, how do they do that? How do they heal that wound? 
So first, it's like, I'm sure this is that's a huge that's a huge oh, yeah. sure question. Oh, but you know, let's start with let's start let's with keep that. Keep it simple and let's just go. Yeah, we'll just go through that because we want to know how we all recognize we do have a wound if we really sit down and we get quiet with ourselves. It's not just our reactions to people or events; it's the wound that we feel underneath it. Well. First of all, it's feeling your pain. I have a really simple kind of step-by-step process of feel your pain, get comfort, compassion, go play. Go play. Mm-hmm. Ah. So, so there's this thing that happens where people are becoming more aware of their pain, emotional mm-hmm. health and intelligence is becoming more trendy and relevant um, overall. So people mm-hmm. are like, oh, we have pain. So people are starting to connect with their pain. But if you connect with your pain without bringing proper comfort, you're actually sometimes re-traumatizing yourself because you're feeling your pain with no comfort. But if we don't feel our pain, we can't get comfort. So the beginning is this, feel your pain. Recognize your sadness. You're scared. You're lonely. Your wound will always be funneled down from those big reaction feelings that we have. It'll be funneled down to sad, or scared or lonely. And once we recognize that, we can hold that in our hands. We can recognize I'm not angry. I'm not out of control. I don't have anxiety. Those are just symptoms and reactions to the scared that I feel. And now I can hold that scared. And I can bring comfort to that scared on a base level of early childhood development. Because that's where I first felt scared without getting comfort. So do you, so when they are going back and saying, okay, I feel scared. Are they trying to find their first moment where they think they felt that? What do, how do they, how do they bring healing to the child part? Yeah. Um, if maybe they aren't sure, mm-hmm. you know, where it started. Yeah, if you're listening to this and you're familiar with some different types of inner healing process, which a lot of people are, um, a lot of people would say we're going back specifically to a memory, we're going to heal the memory, and then we're going to be able to get the comfort that we needed, which is true. But I do two different things that are a little bit different than the average childhood inner healing process. And number one, we don't always have to see a memory to heal a memory. Feeling a memory is more important than seeing a memory. If an event happened in your life, let's say at three years old, your brain is not as cognitive to remember vividly the memory, but you'll know how it felt. There's a quote by Maya Maya Angelou that says, people will forget what you did, they'll forget what you said, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. Mm -hmm. So we, in our early childhood development, might forget what happened to us. We might forget what someone did to us. We might forget what some said to us, but we'll never forget how someone made us feel. And that's both for trauma and pain, but it's also for comfort and compassion. And so being able to connect with that, I don't know if you're familiar with the shack or not. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a, um, so yeah, everyone has different, you know, processes with the shack. 
Um, but I love the shack. <laughs> I love the shack too. I always try to hold it open-handed a little bit just in case people I don't love it just because the analogy is really great. Even if it's not necessarily your favorite, I loved it as well. I felt like there were so many beautiful parallels. Um, but in the shack, the black woman that comes in the form of God, because the Trinity is represented God, Holy spirit, and Jesus, the black woman that represents God in the movie. If you go back to the beginning of the movie, it was actually, she was a woman in the main character's life that when he was a little boy, his dad was beating him. His mom didn't know how to protect him. He ran to her porch, doesn't give context for the relationship, but he ran to her porch and she looked at him in the eyes and said, daddies aren't supposed to hurt little boys like that. You keep talking to God, you're going to be okay. So She was a compassion person in his life that mm-hmm. he remembered from early childhood development that was able to come back 40 years later when he was going through another traumatic situation and was able to bring comfort and compassion and was being able to be represented by God. Mm, that was a beautiful. compassion person in his life. Mm-hmm. So of course, when we go back to early childhood, we're going to see our pain and our trauma. And I'm not ignoring that whatsoever. But part of this process that's a little bit different than other processes, we're going back to feel what our child self felt And the second part is so vital to know our child self, to know who we were at that time, who God created us to be at that time, to know how we felt, to be in relationship with ourselves versus just going back to fix or heal pain. So why don't you give us an example of what that would look like? Um, if you find yourself triggered, you're in a moment mm-hmm. and you're angry yep. or mad or sad or whatever you're feeling yeah. in the moment, run away. And, you're, yep. mm-hmm. and you're trying to process like, Oh, I just know I'm triggered right now. Okay. Okay. Now what do I do? How can I go back and love yep. my child self? Show, yeah. show us this podcast. Tell us <laughs> how we yeah. can, how we can do that. Yeah. So we're going to start out and we're going to pause what's happening and come inward, not to just try to find our pain and fix it, but to actually connect with our heart, connect with ourselves. Then we're going to ask our heart, heart, what are you feeling? And your heart's going to start out with reactions. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I want to run away. I want to give up. Okay. I hear you. What else? I just feel so hopeless. What else? I feel scared. I feel sad. You'll see your emotions go like a funnel down to those softer emotions. Now we've created a tenderness. When we're in our reaction emotions, like oil and water, so hard to think about when you're in a reaction emotion, you're angry and someone tries to give you a hug. Mm -hmm. Even if you like surrender to it, it's like you're not Mm -hmm. receiving it or you're pushing them away because we can't receive love when we're in a reaction. We can only receive love when we're tender. So now we funnel it down and we're tender. Now we need to recognize, what did I need? There's emotional needs. The two reasons we trigger is from um, unmet emotional needs and uncomforted trauma or pain. So we have to recognize, okay, I'm feeling pain. That's why I'm reacting. I'm really scared. Now I need to know what I need. And those needs, which is probably another podcast, um, is um, to be seen, to be heard, to be known, to have affection, 
So then we're taking those needs and we're giving that to our child self. Because the bigger the trigger, the younger you are. Oh. So when you're in a really big triggered state, that means your amygdala, let's say you're at an eight. If zero is you're not triggered at all, an eight mm-hmm. is you're very triggered. 10 is you're triggered out of your mind. <laughs> let's just say you're at an eight. That means your amygdala, your fight or flight um, child brain is at 80% which that then means is your sophisticated adult frontal lobe is 20%. So we are functioning as 80% child, 20% adult. Now, when you get triggered out of your mind and you're a 10, you're a hundred percent child. You'll see it very commonly with adults or um, married couples. They'll be fighting about the smallest things because they're both so triggered. They're both five years old. Now they're fighting like two five-year-olds. And from the outside in, you look in, you go, why are they fighting about that? It's not that big of a deal. But because their brain's engaged as a child, engaged in their amygdala, it does feel like life or death. It does feel like the biggest deal in the whole world. So once we've gone down and we've recognized that we needed to be held, affection, that we needed a mommy and daddy to see us, to hear us, to comfort our scared. We then bring compassion to our heart and say, I see you. I hear you. I'll hold your scared. You take the moments to feel that feeling like you'd give to a best friend or a child or a spouse or someone that you cared about. And when that compassion says Jesus was moved with compassion, healed all those that came to him. And that compassion comes up inside of us. And we were able to give that to that pain in our heart or that unmet need. Our heart heals to a degree that we're able to look back at the trigger and it doesn't hurt so much anymore. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. We're not robots. So it doesn't mean you don't feel anything. Right. Right. What happened, but it can take it from that eight down to a four. That means I'm only 40% in my child brain and I'm 60% in my adult brain. Mm-hmm. We can reason and strategize and logic. We can figure this out now because we're back. We're an adult again. Wow. Wow. That's beautiful. And it reminds me of, um, so, you know, I think a lot of people will, when they're triggered because they're not used to pausing and saying, okay, what am I feeling? Asking Mm -hmm. myself, they just, they're either just fully in it or they maybe feel shame about the fact that they're triggers. And so they, they back away, they go and, you know, I think sometimes it's, it's very good to separate yourself, you know, when you're being mm-hmm. triggered to not stay in this moment that's triggering you if possible, and to go and be alone, spend time, like you said, pause and do that. But some people will back away out of shame. And so um, I don't, do you think this is a good time to talk about your Adam and Eve revelation? Yeah, no, I think it's so great. Cause I think okay. if the process I just explained is a really helpful process to walk through our trigger, but if I feel so badly about my initial reaction, let's just say my, um, we usually have a main reaction, fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Sometimes we'll have more than one, but let's just say, for example, that my main um, triggered response is fight. So I usually get angry. 
I usually feel out of control. I usually feel overwhelmed when I'm in a triggered state. So anger is the, one of the most shamed emotions because everyone says you're bad if you're angry, especially being Christian. We're not supposed to be angry. And so there's a lot of shame connected to it. But anger is ungrieved sadness. It's uncomforted, scared. It's lonely. We don't know how to have anyone be with us. In. So we shove it down and shove it down, suppress it until it comes out like a volcano, angry. There's no angry people in this world. There's only sad people and scared people and lonely people that didn't know how to process their emotions. So they got angry. That is, I just, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but that no, is okay. just, it's so profound. And I really, I pray that people who are listening really get that, yeah, you know, it's because so beneficial that, that takes off so much pressure of, I have to fix myself. I got to stop being so angry. I have to, oh, why do I get so angry? And you're right. I think that that one reaction probably does bring the most shame because yeah. that's the one that's in your face. That's the one that people yeah. don't appreciate. <laughs> yeah, know? exactly. The fun, and, at least so you can be appreciated. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You still, it still hurts you just as much, but at least it looks better. But anger just looks wrong and bad, which this intros us into shame. Yeah. Shame says what you do is who you are. That's what's so detrimental about shame. Because what we do matters but we matter more, right? But when we're doing something wrong, but we think it's who we were, who we are, that's where it creates the hopelessness. That's where we get stuck. So if you go back to the garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had no knowledge of evil, but listen to this. They also had no knowledge of good because it's called the knowledge of good and evil. They had no knowledge right. of good or evil. All they knew was who they were and who God was, and they were with. It's beautiful. And I guarantee you, this is my speculation. So this is not, um, doesn't say it in the Bible, but if you've ever had kids, you know that kids make mistakes. Intentionally or unintentionally, kids make mistakes. They're learning. They don't know. How they learn is usually making mistakes. We all do that. So I guarantee you, Adam and Eve made mistakes. They were learning, they were growing, but they had no knowledge of good and evil. So when they did something good, they didn't think God loves me more. When they did something bad, they didn't think God loves me less. They knew that God loved them unconditionally, no matter what, because what they did was not how they saw themselves. Oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah, it is so beautiful. And so that's what Jesus died for. He died to restore us to and heal our brains from the knowledge of good and evil. So many people think that God, once they ate of the knowledge of good and evil and they ate that fruit, that God was mad at them, that God was upset. I mean, of course he was upset, but like that he was mad at them and that he rejected them and he didn't want to be with them. What I find so intriguing to me is that God came in person to Adam and Eve after they ate the fruit because he was not separating himself from them. Mm. They separated themselves from him and hid in the bushes and covered themselves up and hid from God. But God came to them. 
I always think he could have sent angels to say, you know what? God can't be around you anymore because you now have the knowledge of good and evil and you disobeyed him and you ate of the fruit that he told you not to eat. So now, sorry, until Jesus comes back, God can't be with you. But I think it's so extraordinary that God came to them in their hiding. We can relate to that today as Christians. Mm -hmm. He comes to us in our hiding. And what did they do? As soon as he approached them, they blamed. Shame and blame are best friends. Wherever we blame, we have shame. When we have shame, we blame. And then again, people think that God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden because they were so bad. He had them leave the garden because he was protecting them from being stuck in the knowledge of good and evil for eternity. Because if they had the knowledge of good and evil and they ate of the tree of life, they would have been like that for eternity. So he had them leave, not to separate himself from them, but to protect them. And then I'll take it even a step further that he actually wanted to say maintain tangible connection with Adam and Eve and their children, be fruitful and multiply and their children and you and I. So he gave moms and dads the privilege and honor of being tangible representations of an intangible God, that he could always protect us from eating of the, of the tree of life, with having the knowledge of good and evil, but still stay connected to us as we are, as if we were in the garden. It's extraordinary. That is extraordinary. I absolutely love that revelation. And that is such a God-given revelation. That we, we don't have to hide at any time in our lives from this one who has now restored every good thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're, we're yeah. new creations now and, and there's nothing mm -hmm. about us that is shameful. There's nothing yeah. about us anymore that isn't okay. Yeah. We can be okay when we stay connected to him. And that's just so beautiful that he, that we hid, Adam and Eve hid, but God didn't hide. And he never pointed the finger and, and, and said, well, that was good. And that was bad. And now you're, you, you know, like he just, no, you know, he knew what happened. <sighs> you know, he knew that Satan came and tempted Eve and Eve, Adam and so right. forth. He knows right. the story. He knew but he didn't even come up and blame. He had curiosity. He wanted to know, why did you hide from me? Because if you think about it, he said, when we were still sinners, he died for us because he saw our sin, our actions separate from who we are. So he died for our sins because he saw who we were, just like he saw who Adam and Eve were separate from their sin. So beautiful. Oh my goodness. That is so good. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, yeah, and I, go, get back on track. <laughs> I'm trying to, I, I want to, I have so many. Um, okay. This is going to be a question that I didn't, I didn't um, prepare ahead of time, but I was just thinking when you were yeah. talking about that and, and how Adam and Eve had no concept of good or bad. It was just they just were, they just were connected. They just were who they were, mm -hmm. which is how God wants us to live now. Yeah. And how do we remove this language 
when we're raising kids, I mean, I, uh, my girls are all grown. Now we're having grandchildren and we want to be able to help our grandkids grow and, and, and listeners, you know, a lot of them have kids. Yeah. How, how do we work on this? Oh, you're so good. And that was good. And Mm -hmm. oh, that's, that's really bad. We shouldn't, you know, how do we change this language? Do you have any any yes, I that? definitely <laughs> do. And so, I mean, one, it is kind of funny once you start doing it, myself included, because that's how I raised my kids and a lot of their early childhood development before I learned this process. If you stop trying to say good or bad in raising kids, it's so hard. You're like, <laughs> what do I say? Like, you're like, you're tongue tied because you're like so used to like good, bad. We're doing it all the time. And a lot of people have more recently got the revelation of we probably shouldn't tell our kids that they're bad, but we're all on board with saying they're good. But shame is seeing yourself good just as much as seeing yourself bad because those are still based on what you do. It's not based on who you are. Good right. can be okay. as detrimental as evil. Right. So if we're highlighting, oh, that was so good. Yep. Then they're always trying to achieve that. Yeah. Or get that affirmation. Yep. Children, early childhood development, <laughs> zero to 12 years old needs connection. Like we need food and water. And if good makes mommy and daddy happy, then I'm going to try to be so good for connection. Then you see the kids that go the other direction, they become shameless where they said, excuse my language, but they're like, I'm damned if I do. And I'm damned if I don't, that's how it feels. I know it's dramatic, but that's how it feels. And so you give up and you say, well, I can't, you know, I can never be good enough. So I might as well just be bad because that's who I am. And then the good people, like the Pharisees, they were so good, but they were whitewashed tombs because they did everything right, but they were dead inside. Both are detrimental. So the way to be able to get to the hearts of your children, if you're raising small children, but ultimately to get to any human in your life is to be able to see them for who they are separate from what they do. So if your child does something that we qualify as good, instead of highlighting it was good behavior, they're good, you want to highlight who they are. You were so thoughtful. You were so creative. You were so um, curious. You were so, um, you know, you're inspirational. You're trying to connect with words that describe who that child is. So a small exercise I would recommend doing is writing down like the top 10 things that you see that who your child is versus what they do. And then, and then practice highlighting those when they do something, you're always bringing it back to who they are because who they are is what everything is supposed to, what they do is supposed to flow from. Because a lot of people get scared. If you take away the knowledge of good and evil, we're not going to have any like law or any like system. And it's to be going to become this lawless world. But the more we're connected to who we are, we're made in the image of God, we're going to have good behavior when we're connected to ourselves. But the beautiful thing, it's not, it won't be connected to being good. It'll be connected to who we are made in the image of God. Beautiful. That's so beautiful. Okay. And then let me, I want to go into a question that I was thinking too, that, you know, most I won't say most, even though that included me. Um, 
when we have raised our kids or or even if they're not in mm -hmm. our family it's just people that we know let's just say anyone who has been raised with this you know man pleasing yeah. thing because yeah. they want to be told they're good because they have maybe been told they were bad how can we um how can we help how can we use the compassion method to help heal our family or our friends you know when we're obviously i think it would be people that we are that have entrusted themselves to us you know like we have a deeper relationship with yeah what are some ways that we can use the compassion method in conversation with loved ones we'll just say loved ones to help heal that thing so they're not always feeling like i have to prove myself to you or i i feel like i'm good all the time you that makes you happy or i feel like i'm bad and i'm making you sad how how do we help bring healing to that Mm -hmm. and change that outlook or change that yeah. way of thinking, I should say. Yeah, that's a great question. So I'd say two different ways. Number one, starting with your own personal journey of how you came out of the knowledge of good and evil, that you were able to recognize who you were was more than what you did. And sharing stories, sharing about your identity, sharing about who God created you to be and how you discovered that through compassion and taking care of your heart. So personal testimony, I believe, is always so powerful because it creates an equality and it creates a um, empathy. I know what it feels like to believe in, to believe that the knowledge of good and evil is superior over who you are. And this is my journey out of that. That's a powerful way to help people. And then second, yeah, similar to kids, being able to highlight them when they say, well, I did this, being able to bring it back to who they are how you see them. And it's not just positive talk. It's not just saying like, I affirm you and I encourage you. It's actually being able to bring identity words of who you see them to be. Because it's not just like, a lot of times I always thought, saw it as like, um, like what we do is like, you know, a certain level and then like right above it is who we are. So who we are matters more, but what we do matters. And it's just like, they're kind of like, they're like tying all the time, like barely like who we are is a little bit more superior. But we need to see it like who we are as a foot taller than what we do and start seeing ourselves that way and start seeing others that way. So by highlighting how you see them, who you see them to be, will help them recognize that I'm more than what I do. Mm, that's really good. Oh, I feel like I have a million questions. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and we don't have a million hours, but. Um, okay. So here's another question for you. If I'm having trouble feeling God's presence, will healing triggers help with that? Definitely. So just as I said that when Adam and Eve left the garden, God wanted to maintain tangible connection with them. So he told Adam and Eve to, to not just tell. The Bible actually wasn't just a written word in the beginning. It was acted out. It was expressed. And so it's express the tangibleness of God through parents being able to be those representations for their children. So when we do not feel close to God, it's because we have pain that we haven't had comforted that causes us to feel distant from God. And even more so, we have unmet need 
that wasn't met zero to 12 years old, even if you were raised in a good Christian home, your emotional needs weren't met. So when you try to connect with God in that way, you don't have any tangible uh, memories or circumstances that can help you connect with God. So for example, of zero to 12 years old, you felt like your mom and dad just couldn't hear you. You tried to talk, you tried to share, and for whatever reasons, they didn't know how to hear you. So for the rest of your life up until now, you always feel like you're not quite hurt. Even with a close friend, even with a spouse, you share and you feel like they just can't hear me because we actually needed that in our development and we didn't receive it. So then we turn that relationship to God and we talk to God and we feel like God just doesn't hear us. It's because a mommy and daddy didn't know how to hear us. So now we don't believe God can hear us, but God provided, he knew that your mom and dad could not give you that gift of being heard. So he provided other humans, other people in your life to come in and to be able to give you the gift of being heard. And once you can picture, vividly imagine a person hearing you, it's a body language, it's an intimacy, it's a connection, it's a substance. It feels like something, a connection. When you feel that feeling, then when you return to God, we feel that same substance, that connection that he's hearing us. We feel his body language towards us. Even if we can't see it, we feel the substance of being heard. So if you don't feel close to God, most likely you didn't feel close to your parents in that specific area. And as that need is met, you will feel closer to God. And so when you say, um, imagine someone connecting with you in that way, are you speaking of someone that you have a memory of? Is that it has to be a real person and a real okay. memory that you experience any time in your life? So a coach, a teacher, it could yeah. be anybody. Yep. It can be a family in your friend. Life. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They're, they're, it's really interesting because we only think it's going to come from our mom and dad because those are our primary caregivers. So if a teacher was able to hear you really well, you're like, that's not my mom and dad. That's a teacher, which is true, but they gave you a characteristic of what a mom and dad was meant to give you that your mommy and daddy never learned how to give, never learned for themselves and never learned how to give you. That's so good. Okay. Um, looking at my questions. Let's see. Um, how do healing triggers and the compassion method help us stay in the presence of God? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I, um, I talk about a lot is that we are constantly in a state of con staying connected, staying aware of the Lord, that there's a constant conversation. There's a, even if it isn't you know, words that we're thinking in our mind, there's this, I, I like to explain the presence of God sometimes just feels like a hug. It just feels mm -hmm. like a hug to me. And, yeah. and I believe that it's God's will that we stay in this place of constant connection. And so, yeah, I mean, I know that we, you know, we live and we do think of other things, but there is this place of continual connection with God that I believe he wants everyone to live in. But when someone is being triggered, to me, you're not disconnecting from God. Mm -mm. You're, you're, you're 
you're just being human and you're experiencing real and human mm -hmm. emotions, which isn't wrong, isn't sinful, as you, as you said. And I think, and, and you speak into this, but I think that having a trigger presents itself as an opportunity, not only to love yourself, but to then using that, that moment where you pause, take a deep breath, love on yourself, and then invite God into that healing moment, into that experience, into that compassion. And so how, how would you, how would you express that and say that in maybe a different way? Yeah. So one of the examples I use often is the example of like a foster child. So if a foster child came into a really great Christian loving home and they were in the foster home for love for them, they're not going to instantly say, oh, great. Let's spend all of our time together. I just want to hang out and I just love this. This is so great. Anyone that has any experience in foster care, even those that don't, we know what happens. They punch, they kick, they scream, they fight because love is offensive to pain. And so when we feel that love from God, our ability to stay with him and be attached to him is directly connected to our attachment to our caregivers and our parents all the way down to the womb, all the way down to those first moments of being born, down to, if you study the science behind it, it's not just my idea, it's the science behind attachment at birth and attachment through our lives. So if I didn't have a safe place to attach to love, then that is going to be offensive to me. That's going to be painful to me. So think of God's love coming in, the purest, most powerful form of love, more superior than any foster parent's love will ever be. But do you see how offensive that would be to my pain spots, mm. to my unmet need, to my inability to receive because I didn't receive it first in a tangible human way because we're humans. And so our ability to see consistently presence with God is not our lack of love for God. And of course, not God's lack of love for us. It's our neurological process of avoiding love because it hurts too much because we didn't get what we needed in those early childhood development years. But when we get, when we go back and we bring real people, real experiences of attachment, presence, being with to our three-year-old and she learns or he learns the ability to be with, he's going to want to be with for hours. But if my mommy and dad only spent five minutes with me, here and there, and they were emotionally detached and emotionally shut down. I don't know how to be with. No one's ever taught me to be with. So how can I be expected? This is where a lot of shame comes in in Christianity. How can I be expected to be present with God when I never learned? And because of trauma and unmet need, I actually felt pain in connection to being present with a caregiver, with a love source. So now it goes into compassion. Wow. No wonder it's so hard for us to be present with God versus what's wrong with you that you're not present with God. And so you're giving yourself compassion. You know, people, people um, will message me a lot and say, 
but I, I don't understand why I can't and why I can't do that. And I, I can't say, and, and, that, and it's true, you know, they're feeling shame, but instead of focusing on what you don't have, allowing yourself to say, Hey, it's okay. You're safe. I, you know, like, what are some of the, tell me, tell us um, what some of the key phrases would be maybe. Yeah. So I developed a list of compassion phrases that comes from whenever someone would invite a surrogate mother and father into a painful memory. These are some of the common phrases that they would say. So what they would feel would be um, some of the phrases are take all the time you need. I'll sit with you until you feel safe. I don't see you as broken. I don't want to get rid of you. I'll stay with you no matter what. I see you. I accept you. I see you trying so hard. And I know you care so much. I enjoy you. Mm. Those are beautiful. I think that's a perfect place to just let the listeners know that if this has been speaking to you, if this is really um, breathing on something inside of you and you're like, I need this, I need to, I need to connect with this. I need to show myself compassion and I want to learn some more. I want to allow you a moment to just tell them about your course and you have a yeah. podcast and, yeah. and show, tell them where they can connect with you so that they can get yeah. some more resources. Yeah, that's great. Because I mean, we could go on and on, like you were mm-hmm. saying, like we can keep going, which I mean, I love talking about this. I love sharing it with all you that are listening. It's really close to my heart to bring such beauty from ashes to be able to share this with you. Um, but what I would encourage, I have a podcast, it's called Triggered and True. You can look up triggeredandtrue.com for different listening options. Um, and then also I have a master course that in, it has each of the six modules of the compassion method and that's compassionmethod.net. And you can look that up. Um, the, of course, the podcast is free. The course does cost something, um, but I know it's me talking, but I feel like it's invaluable because if you went and met with someone, you would end up spending so much more. And if you walked yourself through this course, you would be able to get so much more out of it. And so um, I just highly recommend it. And then also I'm on Instagram. And um, if you know me, I'm not a big salesperson. I'm actually sharing this because she's like, and then you can share these other resources. <laughs> the main reason I started a podcast that I did the master course and that I have Instagram with lots of content is because I wanted to be able to multiply myself to give to other people. So this is not sales. I don't care about followers. I don't care about subscriptions. I just really want a as many people as possible to be able to hear this message. So if you go to Laura Duncan Consulting on Instagram, I have a lot of resources on there. Go back to past posts. There's so many great pieces there that we've presented for you to be able to do your healing journey, even remotely, even if you don't have someone specifically walking you through it. That's so good. I love that. Thank, I'm, I'm, I can feel the presence of Jesus as we're talking. I can feel the love of God. I can tell that you are carrying a part of his heart with such honor and such um, just so much love 
you know, I can feel the genuineness of your heart and that you really desire to help people. And God's given this to you. It's such a gift. So before we finish, I just want to ask if you would pray for the listeners. Yeah, I'd love to. Sounds great. God, thank you so much for who you are and who we are with you. I thank you that you died to restore us to who we truly are. And I just thank you that each person that's listening today has permission and access to Colossians 1.20 of your blood restored us to your us to yourself. Original design, factory setting. We are pure. We are perfect in who we are. And I just pray whatever pain you have, whatever trauma, whatever unmet needs you've experienced in your life, that you would have just an understanding or revelation and then being able to recognize all the love that God's given you, even if it comes in different ways than we expected. I just pray for clarity and peace and joy as you walk through this process, whatever your journey is. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Father. Amen. Thank you for joining me on the Breathing God podcast. If this show has ministered to you, please consider leaving a review right here. And if you think the podcast will bless someone else, please share it. You can find help for anxiety, sign up for my newsletter, and find lots of other goodies on my website, GretchenRodriguez.com.